Hey, it's Nikki Reitmeyer. Before we get into this week's episode, just a warning. You may find it difficult to listen to, as again, we're talking about sensitive subject matter, including violence against children. This is part two of a two-part series on restorative justice. I just locked eyes on him. The very first thing out of my mouth was, do you have something to say to me? Do you have something to say to me after all these years, you know? And, uh, and he did. After nearly 40 years, she met her rapist. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer, and this is Why. In the last episode, in part one of this series, we met Nikki. Thanks for coming in. Are you using my last name? It is completely up to you. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think I want my last name right now. Okay. When she was eight years old, she was sexually assaulted by a man named John Horace Outen. But you may remember him by the name the press gave him. They called him the paper bag rapist. Back in the mid-1980s on the West Coast in the Vancouver area, there was a guy they called the paper bag rapist. Uh, John Horace Outen is his name. That's John McComb. John is a morning show radio host on CKNW in Vancouver, B.C. But I remember the, the case of working in the news business back in those days and just how terrifying it was for people to, you know, to hear these stories that somebody would would attack and rape an eight-year-old girl. I mean, it was just as abhorrent now as it was then. It's believed that he sexually assaulted, raped dozens upon dozens of women. And so finally he was caught, he was tried, and he's currently, he's still in jail, he's designated as a dangerous offender. The woman who uh, I interviewed, a woman named Nikki, who was eight years old at the time. Uh, She's now in her mid-40s. She was bulimic. But it's only been recently that the fact that she was raped when she was eight years old has come through as the driver, as the real problem. And as part of dealing with that, she sat down with the man who raped her and maybe dozens and dozens of other women and sat down with him for two hours and just asked him why. Nikki contacted John and told him that she wanted to share her story, the story of how she met her rapist. Here's what their conversation sounded like. Can you verbalize the the types of emotions? What was that experience like when you finally came face to face with this man that had done so much damage all throughout your life? The work up to it, uh, you know, you have to kind of try and prepare somewhat, but I don't know that you can prepare fully for anything like this. There were things I... I decided I wanted to say to him, I wanted to share with him. So going in, you know, I had somewhat of an agenda. Mm -hmm. But again, I 
felt, did I want, you know, would I want to jump across the table and put my hands around his neck? Did I want to, you know, would I collapse and not be able to do it? I have major anxiety. Would I have a panic attack? There's just a million things. But when he walked in the door, uh, he's in a wheelchair, so they wheeled him in. And they wheeled him into right in front of me so he was sitting where you are compared to where I am and I just locked eyes on him and uh, the very first thing out of my mouth was do you have something to say to me and I didn't even that wasn't planned you know it's just what came out of my mouth at that time do you have something to say to me after all these years you know and uh, and he did. And that's what, you know, I, I believe it was at the beginning that he uh, stood up out of his wheelchair and stood in front of me and apologized. And then we got into the discussion of what exactly are you apologizing for? You acknowledge to me what you're apologizing to me for, you know. And, um you know, the guy clearly has mental health issues as well, which I understand. So to answer your question, I had a lot of compassion for him. I didn't expect to. Wow. I, you know, I think I have enough self-control that I knew I wouldn't jump on the table, but you have those visions, you know what I mean, of this monster in your head of wanting to maybe hurt him like he hurt you. And uh, I just didn't feel that when I was in there, you know. And I just wanted to release. I wanted to... I had a letter that I wrote when I was 11 years old. I got a typewriter <clears throat> in the 80s. It was clearly manual. <laughs> Took a few <laughs> days to write a letter. But I wrote a letter and I called it The Scary Man. And it was uh, exactly from beginning to end of the incident. Documenting it. It's like I had to get it out at that age. Yeah. And that's another thing I've held on to for years. So I wanted to read that to him. I didn't think I'd be able to. I, I thought my mom would read it, actually. But something took over when I was in that meeting. Something took over, and I was focused on him. I don't remember anything. I just remember staring in his eyes for two hours, wow. two and a half hours. It didn't take my eyes off him. And at one point in the middle of it, I started to violently shake. And I think that was just, I didn't think I was capable of maintaining my composure like that and getting done what I needed to get done. And my body started to react a wee bit. Um, And then he offered me his jacket. Interesting. I declined, clearly. Man. Uh, But, you know, that's his way of, I guess, you know, I can't speak for him and why he does or says the things he does. but. Can you tell me, because I'm, I'm really interested in this process of, I don't know if it's forgiveness, you looked at this man and had compassion. I mean, to me, that is absolutely mind-blowing. I wouldn't say, okay, I wouldn't say, uh, compassion, I wouldn't say is the right word. Okay. Uh, but understanding, a basic understanding of humans and mental illness. Yeah. And for many... I didn't even realize, but for many years I wondered, why did he do this? Why did he choose us that day? Sure. I wanted those questions answered. And his, his answers 
riddled with mental illness, yeah. you know, yeah. and he's been diagnosed. Yeah. And how he described why he chose us that day is very sick yeah. and uh, driven by mental illness. So I wouldn't say, uh, no, I wouldn't say I have a, a lot of compassion for the man, but it helped me understand it. And understanding something takes away a bit of that uh, anger and scariness of it, it diffuses, you know, diffuses. kind of. It just makes, you know, he's a flawed, bad human being, yeah. but he's a human being. And uh, so, you know, I just understand it. I've lived with mental illness my whole life. Mm-hmm. I, I blame him. I don't think I was born with this. You know, life for me was very different. You can ask my mom yeah. what I was like before this incident happened. But the rest of my life, you know, has been uh, driven by mental illness, coping with that one incident that one day, you know. So understanding uh, or it may not be the same for everyone, but understanding where his head was at that day, a bit of his history, his background, helped me. What was his history? Mental illness, seeing things, thinking people, being angry. His childhood, I don't know a whole lot about. Just heavy mental illness, like schizophrenia-type mental illness, where he hears voices. He Untreated. Absolutely. Oh, completely untreated to this day. He's from what I know, not participated in many things to sort of help that. And, you know, that's another thing that at this age makes me angry. I fight every day. I've been asking for help for years from the government, from anyone who can help me. And it's a struggle. He's got things at his fingertips. He gets offered all this help. I'd heard he'd had some sort of dental work done I've abused my body for the last 20 years with bulimia, so I'd like some dental work done. But I don't have anybody stepping forward to offer to pay for that, you know. But in prison, you get some of that covered, you know. And there are just some things, it's just, I sound like a child when I say it, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. And it adds to the stress of trying to figure these things out later on in life. You know, I, I think it's where the anger has come from. Anger at the system more than anything. Absolutely. You know. Coming up later in this episode. Coming out of the, the prison, coming out of there, and in the weeks after that, did you feel any different? You're listening to This Is Why. Download and subscribe to the podcast now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. David Gustafson is the executive director of the Community Justice Initiative Association. They work with people like Nikki, connecting victims with perpetrators. Now, he said that early in his career, he recognized it's important for victims to be validated by the people who have done them wrong. I know that sounds weird, but the way David explains it, it actually kind of makes sense. In many of the cases I was witnessing, people were getting better as they went through this process and as they were able to start talking about their need to be validated by the perpetrator of the offenses against them. So it sounds like a very strange thing that that could be a healing thing. 
But so often people are faced with denial, not guilty pleas. They're left to try and prove the truth of their own stories. And there's something powerful and profound, as there was in Nikki's case, when the perpetrator of that offense says, I remember. And yes, I did perpetrate those offenses against you, and I'm sorry. David was actually the one who helped Nikki come face-to-face with John Horace Outen, the man who sexually assaulted her when she was just a kid, and the man who tormented her mind for decades. But remember, Outen had so many victims. After he was arrested back in 1985, he claimed he raped around 150 women and children. So, believe it or not... Nikki wasn't actually the first one who confronted him through the process of restorative justice. We had already taken three of his victims into the prison to meet with him prior to this. When Nikki's case came up, it was same modus operandi, obviously the same offender. Uh, her story impressed me. It was very clear that she had been languishing and that she had been seeking some kind of intervention like this for a long, long time. So it was a matter of 15 minutes into our first our first meeting, our first interview, when uh, she made absolutely clear that she had been thinking about a face-to-face meeting with this fellow for some time and that she was looking to me to put the pieces together to build the bridge and to get her to the middle of that bridge and safely back home again. John McComb asked Nikki in their interview... What was it like to go to the middle of that bridge? And what was life like after she got to the other side? Coming out of the the prison, coming out of there, and in the weeks after that, did you feel any different? I spent two weeks in bed after it. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, I shut down. I knew in my gut what I was doing was the right thing, and I, I, a few people have asked me, and I had said afterwards, I had a sense of... Again, it's this connection to my gut that he took away from me that day. In my gut, I knew I had done the right thing. But in my brain, I was spinning and processing and what now? What do I do? Did I say the right, you know, everything. So, yeah, I spent two weeks in bed, uh, just incapacitated from it. Um, And then slowly started to come out and, I guess, talk about it and continue the journey you know you got to brush it off at some point and say okay I've done that and what now and now you're sitting here (laughs) talking to me about your story in a in a interview that would be broadcast to flying by the seat of my pants again (laughs) may I add John I've built a career out of flying by the seat of my pants tens of thousands of people will hear this yeah what do you want them to know about where you are now I would say to hold on, hone in on your gut instinct. If something in your gut, you know, life is always balancing gut and mind. And if you've been a victim of a trauma at any point in your life and you think that you could never do this, I'm telling you, you can. We're stronger than we think. Can you see a point in your future where you're, you're happy? Yes. I'm already happy. I feel happiness in my life. Good. And, you know, that's, I would say over the last few months, I've kind of made some leaps and bounds in life. Mm -hmm. And this is part of it. I'll walk out of here 
feeling happy that a I've accomplished something myself, something I never, you know, I remember hearing his other victim on the radio yes. um, a couple of years ago and thinking, I want to be where she is. You know, I just felt so deep and low into it. And I th- remember thinking, I want to do what she does. I want to be strong enough to be able to speak my story and get it out there and let people know that it's not hopeless. There are people out there that can help you and that you can come out on the other side of this victorious. So what happened when the interview ended and and the mics went off? You know, what impression were you left with? Well, it was it, it was interesting after the mics were off. We were standing up to sort of leave the studio. She she leaned into one of the mics and said, "I want the world to know that I'm feeling really good right now and that I'm really happy." And I just uh, that was just neat. It's interesting that she walked in the door feeling nervous and and apprehensive. Of Absolutely. course she would. Of course she would. Yeah. But left saying, I want the world to know how good I feel right now. Yeah. Just in that half an hour of telling the story to a stranger, how much that will help her. I think it's just immensely powerful. John, thank you very much for the conversation. My pleasure, Nikki. Studies show that victims who participate in restorative justice, like Nikki, really benefit from it. They show a reduction in symptoms related to PTSD, that's post-traumatic stress disorder, and their stress levels go down too. In some cases, it helps with a victim's ability to return to work, to resume daily activities, and their ability to sleep. And interestingly enough, studies also suggest it offers the highest rate of offender accountability compared to any other method of justice, meaning that with restorative justice, perpetrators are most likely to admit that what they did was wrong. This Is Why is produced by John O'Dowd and me, Nikki Reitmeyer. It's a national radio show and it's a podcast. So if you want to hear this episode again, if you want to hear part one of this two-part series or any other episode, you can download and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And when you're there, make sure you give us a rating and a review. Tell your friends about us as well. A shout out to Tracy Lee, who on Apple said, I'm a podcast junkie. And as a Canadian, I really enjoy this one. Thanks, Tracy. And a big thanks to everyone else who's leaving comments and reviews. We're on Twitter at This Is Why. And you can always send us an email, especially if you have a story idea. This is why at CuriousCast.ca. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you next week.